The following audio is from Cross Life Church in Tampa, Florida. We are a church that exists to help people find Christ, their place in the body, and their mission to the world. Our calling is to raise leaders and plant churches. So if you live in the Hudson area or near Wester Chapel, you can also check us out at one of our other locations. For more information, visit us at crosslife.net. All right, well, we are in John chapter 2 this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 25 this morning, the accounting of uh, Jesus cleansing the temple. Now, I mentioned a couple times, I know, that so that these first, in these first 12 chapters of John, there are seven signs. And John said that he specifically wrote about these seven signs because he wanted to point to Jesus as being the Son of God, the Messiah, so that we might believe in Him and that by believing we might have life in His name. And I also mentioned, and I think it's important to keep these in mind as we go through, that each of these signs uh, that John used he used to introduce a truth concerning Jesus, a significance about Jesus, a truth about Jesus, and Jesus' message. And as we're going to see as we go through this study, uh, here's a miracle. So like this one that we just saw last week, uh, his first miracle turning water into wine. Now what we're going to notice as we go forward is that in the next events that John is recording, he's pointing back to the significance of Jesus and the message or the truth concerning who Jesus was. So he's really emphasizing. So when he's writing, he says, you know, there's a lot of things that Jesus did when, that aren't written in this book, but I'm writing these things and I'm writing for this very specific reason. So that's why sometimes when you read through the Gospels, uh, other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, some of the stuff that J John is writing about isn't in those, and sometimes the order of them aren't, aren't in the same order. And he's going, look, just so you know, I'm, I'm writing, and I'm taking these 12 signs about who Jesus is, and I'm going to emphasize those truths. And the reason I'm doing this is so that you can know who Jesus is for sure, and that by believing in him, you could have life through his name. So, the, so this first uh, miracle that we talked about last week, uh, turning water to wine, we learned that through it, Jesus, John basically is revealing Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, and that He's come to give us new life. That He was going to establish a new covenant with humanity, with the people of Israel, with humanity. So there was this change that was taking place. And then these next events that we're going to be looking at, the cleansing of the temple, Nicodemus, John's further testimony, the further testimony of John the Baptist and this Samaritan woman, we're going to learn they all point back and they, they emphasize the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. He's come to give His life to create a new covenant so that we might have new life. He is the one that is going to do that. And we see that in all of these things that um, take place after. So let's just jump in and read uh, chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 13 through 22. It said, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
It says, In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who were selling doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered what that, that it, when that happened, his disciples remembered what had been written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. And they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it up in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was of his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus has spoken. Now, just in brief, in the cleansing of the temple, uh, Jesus is declaring that he's God's son because as he said, basically, this is my father's house. And he reveals his passion for the purity and the intended purpose of God's temple, which was a meeting place with God and man, it was to be a house of worship, a house of prayer. And so Jesus, when he goes into the temple, he sees all this going on. He said to them, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Now, let me just give us some background so that we can kind of understand maybe even a little better why Jesus was doing what he was doing. First of all, the temple was divided into four courts or four gathering places. I think there was the, uh, there was, uh, when you first walked in, there was a court of the Gentiles, there was a court of the women, there was a court of the priests, there was a court of men. So there are these courts. But the, when you first came into the temple, there was this great big court area, and it was called the court of the Gentiles. And as I've studied, most believe that this is where all this took place, all this money changing, the selling of the animals uh, for sacrifices. And so the Jewish leaders had designated this court as a suitable place to transact these affairs. So if you, but, but it, this gathering place in, in the temple, it was supposed to be a place of prayer and worship for the Gentiles, those outside of Jewish tradition that wanted to come and pay tribute and to worship and to pray and to connect with God, right? And so... If you, if you think about it, this was supposed to be a place where all that was happening, and yet all these other people around, they're exchanging money, they got animals, they're selling money. It was, there's no way, could you imagine being in a place, even open air, this size, and you got, now we have to remember that thousands and thousands and thousands of people went to Jerusalem for Passover. So it was a very, very busy place. And here's this courtyard area that's supposed to be a, a quiet place, a place of worship, a place of prayer, and it had just be, been turned upside down with all the noise and the po commotion from the people, the sounds and the smells of the animal. It would have been very distracting. It was not an atmosphere for worship. And in my mind, by the Jews determining this is where it was going to take place, in my mind, it really shows contempt for the Gentiles. 
And so, now why was all this going on? So it is a Passover, and the Passover was a pilgrimage feast. So there were pilgrimage feasts in Jerusalem, I think there were three of them, where Israel was supposed to come to Jerusalem to worship. God called them to come to Jerusalem. So Passover is that. So you have this huge influx of people coming to Jerusalem. And um, it's not just the Jews that were coming, but it was also Gentiles from other known parts of the world, uh, the country and the areas were coming so that they could worship. They could offer God their sacrifices. And, and since many people traveled from great distances, if they were supposed to, if they wanted to bring an offering, sometimes they traveled so far away that it, was, it wasn't logical to try to bring their animals with them. So what they would do is they would try to find an animal that they could purchase so that they could sacrifice or offer in tribute or in sacrifice for sin, uh, 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 a free will offering of some sort. So there was a need for animal sacrifices. There was a need for that. And also, since the law required every male who was uh, 20 years or older to pay a half a shekel in tribute to the temple in Jerusalem, money changers were there because people from all over the world were coming. So it wasn't just that they were coming... The Jews were scattered all over, so they came out of Egypt, they came out of Assyria, they came out of Babylon. There were a lot of, lot of places that Jews traveled from. There would have been a lot of places that those Gentiles wanting to worship God would travel from. And because the Jews would not allow uh, any other currency to pay this tribute or to be used in the temple... They could only use Jewish coins. So they couldn't use the Roman currency, Assyrian, Egyptian, Babylonian. And one of the reasons why it is stated that way is because it would have had the image of their emperor. It would have had other images of pagan worship on them. And so the Jews said, yeah, the only acceptable money that is allowed in the temple has to be Jewish coins. And so um, what these money changers and these merchants were doing, really, they were, it was a good thing. They were offering a service to the people. So they were there. They were offering a servant, service to the people. Now, history tells us that what used to happen is this used to happen outside of the city of Jerusalem, and it used to happen on the hillsides. And, but now we learn that in Jesus' time it had moved into the temple. So I think it's important for us to note also that, so it moves into the temple, and it's important for us to know that the family of the high priest controlled the selling of the animals and the exchange of currency. So it used to be out there, somewhere along the line, the, the high priest of the family of the, the high priest said, hey, let's, let's bring that in. And when they brought it in, what began to take place is they began to charge exorbitant amounts for the sacrifices. And when they began to exchange money, they, they exchanged money at exorbitant rates. 
And so what happened, in, in essence, they were price gouging, <laughs> right? So they were, that was all happening out there, and those merchants were providing a service, some money changers were providing a service, and that was great. Somehow they said, you know what, we bring that in here, and we'll be able to profit from that. So really, uh, that is exactly what took place. It had become corrupt, and they were doing it for their own personal gain. And so we learn in Matthew's account of this same uh, event where Jesus cleared the temple, Jesus said to them, uh, my father's house should be called a house of prayer, but you, you have made it a den of thieves. So he gets really specific about his indignation. Not only, and, and just, if you just think with me, uh, just them putting all this where the Gentiles who God so loved the world, right? It was always God's intention for the world to be one. It was always God's intention that the Jew was to be a light, a God's light to the nations to show them how wonderful God is. The Jews had gotten to a place where they decided that this is where this was going to happen. And on top of it, they're not only desecrating the temple, they're not only showing contempt for the Gentiles, they're profiting from all of that. And so Jesus, he basically, now I, I, it would have been a sight to see. Jesus single-handedly, all by himself, my aunt, takes a whip and just starts, I don't know what he was saying as he was going through, but he's driving out all the animals. He's driving out all the people that are the merchants. He's throwing over the tables of the money changers. He's driving them all out of the temple. And he says, stop doing what you're doing. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. And so he's opposing really the corruption. And really he's coming up against a religious establishment, so to speak. Um, he's opposing the corruption that's taking place in God's house. And single-handedly, just against the religious establishment about what is taking place in the temple of God. So, we'll, I'll stop there before we go much further. Anybody got any thoughts about that? First, I thought, why Jesus is acting this way? Because I was thinking, yes, they're selling their stuff, but it's not a big deal. But now that you're explaining, the way you're explaining that it, got, it was corruption, it was already these people were taking advantage of the, the other people. And so now I understand better why Jesus did it, because it was not just they are selling their things. They, they, it, everything, it became corrupted. Everything was not no good in the eyes of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I was. Okay. Somebody else? He's got it. Anybody else got a thought about that? Candy? Thought, but it's just the clarification of the money changers. I never understood. I thought that was the money changers. They were just taking in the money for the uh, sacrifices. But now that helps me to understand. I didn't realize that they had to use Jewish coins. Interesting. Okay. Somebody else? Got thoughts? 
I just wonder, Jesus all by himself. Now, I don't know how many money changers were in there. I didn't, I didn't study to find out how big that court was. But you're talking tens and tens of minimums. Tens and tens of thousands of people in Jerusalem. So at any given time you went into that temple, there were a lot of money changers and a lot of merchants in that courtyard area. And Jesus, you know, you tri you know, one guy tried to do that today, it'd be like, so there's a part of this, this divine oversight concerning God over his son in doing what he was doing, possibly. Somebody else? Uh, just a couple thoughts. Um, that's funny, Candy talks about the money exchange and I'm sure it was very corrupt, so it's interesting that they would be taking in more of the, of the money from other peoples with the images on them, mm. right? I don't know if they're melting at that, whatever they're doing with it, but again, it's, they're taking more of that in, right, in an unfair mm. exchange. Um, but I like the fact that, or when it says, the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? You know, that right there is a statement of guilt, right? A statement of, we know what we're doing is wrong. I mean, no, anybody should, be, should have been able to walk in there and said, this is wrong. Hmm. Right? But uh, I think it's just interesting that, you know, it's, it's thrown to Jesus. You have to give us a sign to show your authority. And I'm sure they all heard about the signs he was doing. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, if you make a miracle happen right here, now we'll all leave? No. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, yeah, we'll all believe? No. You know? Yeah, and even at the least, it was when Jesus called his, uh, it, the temple his father's house. He was basically saying, I'm the son of God. And when you read a little bit later in John, it was the very thing that John writes. He said, for this reason, the Jews were all seeking the more to kill him because he was calling God his own father, making him equal with God. You got something? So this area of the temple is supposed to be holy ground. And with their actions, they've defiled it. It's no longer holy. So to me, it's just really interesting how we're talking about transformation from an old to a new and how Jesus did that with the wine and now he's doing it with his father's house and how in order to cleanse the temple, he makes a really big mess. Mm. I mean, he tears the place up and it, the scripture doesn't say anything about him cleaning it up. He just went in, and, and it's calculated. Like, he goes in. Now, you know that Jesus knows all, so he already knows that this is going on. He's been to Jerusalem for this Passover for how many years? He's 30 years old already. He's gone there every year with his family. He knows this is all going on. He has known about it. He's never done anything about it until now. And he goes in, and he cal it says he makes a whip of cords. I don't know how long that takes, but it can't be something that just happens right away. And it doesn't say that he went in with a whip. He says he goes in and makes a whip. So he sat there and made a whip, and then he just erupted and destroyed everything. And it doesn't say that he cleaned it up, but thinking about my own life, like sometimes he comes in 
and he wrecks stuff that needs to be wrecked. <laughs> I never thought about that before. <laughs> That's interesting. Tony, it is also interesting that um, one of you two said they knew it was wrong. The Jews never went to him and said, this is wrong for you to do, this is unlawful. They never tried to arrest him for what he did. Tony? Yeah, uh, when I read this verse over and over again, I'm always thinking about anger. So, well, Jesus showed his anger at this special occasion here because of the temple and the holiness. At the same token, there's a learning lesson here. And because he shows anger, but a little bit later in John 3, John 3, 16, you know, for those who believe, you know, will not perish and have eternal life, he's still telling them that although he was angry at, at, in that moment for them to do that, he wasn't really judging them whether they're going to go to hell or heaven. He was just judging the act of what they were doing at the temple. So when I think of that, I think of it of, okay, is it okay to be angry? He was angry, right, at this spe a specific moment, but he never held a grudge. He just continued to be who he is. Okay. And um, he's coming. That he reads, you know, that he says, uh, comes from Psalm 69, nine. 9, and it says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And so I think it clearly shows you that um, what they were doing was a reproach to God. Mm. And his anger was righteous because a righteous anger is not being angry over something being done against you, but his zeal was for his father's house. Mm, that's good. And that's a righteous anger. That's a good clarification. Yeah, the disciples all of a sudden realize, yep, okay, yeah, I remember this now, that zeal for your father's house zeal that you'll have for your father's house. But the Jews, however, you know, they responded to him. They just basically said, hey, what sign can you show us to prove you have the authority to do all this? And if you think about it, in one way, their question really wasn't out of bounds. I mean, they're the ones that are the rulers. And so they go, hey, what are you doing? And why are you doing it? Who, who do you think you are to be able to do that? So in, 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 in that Part of that uh, really wasn't an out bounds, but they didn't. They didn't just ask that. What they did is these Jewish leaders demanded a sign from him to prove his authority. And as Doug brought out, uh, and if you look in chapter two, verse twenty-three, it says that when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. They saw the signs that he was doing. So there's a very real possibility that those were there. They had already heard of who Jesus was and the signs he did. That's a very real possibility that they were there and they are, had already seen some of the messianic signs that he was doing. And so it's almost like they're going right here, right now, prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are Messiah. And Jesus goes, okay, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And it's, it's almost like this is kind of like uh, what? It's like a left field thing. And they're going, you know, the, I'm sure the disciples are wondering what's going on. The Jews are going, there's no way that, that can happen. It took 40, 60 years to build this thing. And you think it's going to, you can raise it up in three days. And so it kind of seems like it's 
in left field, but it's not at all as we're going to look and see because this response that he gives them is really a similar response that he gave him and another time when he asked for it, the Jews asked for a sign. He says, the only sign that's going to be given to you is a sign of Jonah, the, pro- the prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah was, in, uh, was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, which we know pointed to Jesus' crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. Uh, so as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites through what took place, the Son of Man is going to be assigned to this generation. Now, if you think about it, I said that uh, already there was this mounting tension with the Jewish leaders. If Jesus would have just right there gave them a direct answer and said, hey, just so you know, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God, they would have just taken up stones to stone him right then and there, would have cut short what Jesus is trying to do. And I think as last week we were talking about, he said when he, with his mom, he goes, it's not yet my time. And so here, it's not time. And last week I said that, you know, it goes on in the Gospels you read that Jesus is saying, I'm the Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. He gets up all the way toward the end and he says, I am God. And that's when uh, they work to kill him. Doug? When we see things... um other times in the Gospels and more in this Gospel when Jesus does and says something and they come to stone him and it's like, where'd he go? Right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Again, it's not his time. Right. Right. He knows the perfect time of everything. Mm. So yeah. it's just, I, I think it's funny when we start, and funny, but he starts with, you know, woman, this is not my time. And then it's sort of like, okay, here we go. It's the beginning it's the beginning of the beginning instead of the beginning of the end, which we would say it's the beginning of the beginning where he knows, mm-hmm. you know, this is coming, but it's not just today. I got, you know, I don't know what timeline it is here, but I got two years and eight months, you know, whatever mm-hmm. that is, um, because there's things that I, I will be doing and have to do. That's good. I think it's also interesting that um, when Jesus says that to these, he's, he's, He's using a, uh, an allegory. And we know that when Jesus spoke to the people, he spoke to them in parables or parabolic language. And so an allegory is, is a picture that has a hidden meaning. And uh, a parable is really a story that illustrates a, a truth, a spiritual truth. And in both of them, parables and in allegories, there is, this, there is this similitude, there's this likeness of the two things. And so Jesus is saying, what we know when he says, destroy this temple, he's talking about his body. We know that when he talks about other things, when he's talking about later, when he talks about bread from heaven, he's talking about himself, his own life. And so there's always these two things that are laying side by side. So in, in reality, when the religious leaders prove to us that you give us a sign to prove to us that you're Messiah, he really did. He said, oh, all right. Well, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up. 
he really did give him a sign. We're going to walk into that a little bit. But I kind of wanted to also bring out the, the reality of the fact that um, him speaking in parables and him speaking in allegories to the people that they didn't understand, many didn't understand, but many did. And, and so when the disciples asked Jesus, why is it that you speak to them in parables? Why don't you just tell them plainly who you are and why you were sent? And Jesus answers and tells the disciples, he says, well, we really need to get this. He said, to you, to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. To you who believe, it has been revealed to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, now who them? Those that oppose, those who did not believe. It has not been granted. That's why I'm speaking to them in parables. Because while they are seeing, they don't see. While they're hearing, they don't hear, nor do they understand. Which is the prophecy of Isaiah concerning these days. When he says this, he, uh, he says, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. The heart of this people has become dull. In their eyes, they scarcely, their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, so I, this is so important. I think it's so important for us in our faith journey. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's not about being dismissive about stuff we don't understand. It's about trusting that God will help us see. And so he says, otherwise, they would have seen with their ears. They would have heard with their, uh, they would have seen with their ears. <laughs> they would have seen with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in return, and I would heal them. So Jesus tells his disciples, he says, blessed are your eyes because they do see and your ears because they do hear. Your heart is not dull. You have not refused to hear and you've not closed your eyes. So when the religious leaders demand a sign of proof, uh, again, Jesus tells them in this allegory, this likeness, okay, it's this temple really is about my body. Destroy this place where God dwells and I'll raise it up on the third day. You kill me and I will be raised, I will raise myself again to prove who I am. And so again, he does tell them very clearly. He does give them a sign. And after three more years of this, more miracles of, that were messianic miracles, they still did not believe. And we learn here, because John reveals to us that he was speaking of his body. And then it says that after the resurrection, it was after the resurrection that his disciples understood what he was saying. Okay, now let's just take a back, step back here. How often is it when we read, we don't, we ju it just goes... Whew, it goes over our head. We, we don't see, we don't know, we don't understand. It happens. Even the disciples, how many times are they, they don't have a clue about what's going on and they're like, they're walking with Jesus. You know, we go, hello, are you dumb or what? Don't you see that? And we're going, yeah, we got the privilege or the honor or the opportunity to read all this, right, and to be able to look back, to have some understanding because it's been revealed, to be able to look back, but they didn't have that. They were, they were in the present. 
and they were walking with Jesus. And even as they were walking with Jesus, there were just things that they didn't understand, like it had been already brought out. Why would Jesus just, that's like out of character for Jesus just to go in and start with a whip and flipping over tables and doing what's going on here. And so certain truths concerning, you know, I, I say this all the time. There's really just one thing that God is trying to teach us and that is to trust him because that applies to every facet of our life, whether it's your future, whether it's health or healing in your body, whether it's, um, uh, trouble in your in relationships with kids with money you just name any of it and all he's trying to do is get us to place to trust him sometimes it's like okay this does not make sense i don't understand this all god why and then it's just like silent but it, we need to understand that it wasn't till after now jesus how many times it was he had how many times did he have conversations with him, but it really wasn't till after the resurrection that they understood what was taking place. And sometimes for us, it doesn't come sooner. It comes later. But for those who refuse, so what we need to do is just not have our hand up, right? Because for those that refuse, their hearts just become hard. And they won't hear. And they won't see because they have purposely plugged their ears. They've purposely closed their eyes. And that's why they don't see, that's why they don't understand. Any thoughts about that? Anybody? Yep. I think you're on. It's on? All right. Um, Wow. Yeah, there is all sorts of conversation here. Okay. So... To me, it's, it's amazing that, um, she wants me to sing, apparently, no. Um, so I, when, when I look at this, I wrote down, you know, how many people in the court, in the temple court when that happened, you know, three years later, whatever the timing, timing is, after the resurrection are gone who weren't the disciples, are going, yeah, that's that guy, right? Um, you, I mean, they're there, right? Um, when Jesus talks about um, the counselor and promises the counselor, he says to the disciples that the counselor will give you the, the power to remember all the things I have told you, mm. right? So when the Holy Spirit comes, then it's all complete. And what, you know, that's the big shift, right? All of a sudden, Peter is now the rock um, that he gets named earlier in this gospel. Um, but I just think it's interesting that, you know, who in, who in the temple and which of those leaders remember after his resurrection what he said? Mm, that's good. But they got to think about that. Mm-hmm. So just, there's the principle of truth that these things are what Paul said they are spiritually discerned. In other words, there's just certain stuff you're not going to see, you're not going to know because you're blinded. You're blinded by the God of this world. You're blinded by sin. You're blinded by the darkness. When Jesus comes in, what's he do? He just, he begins to open the curtain. Yeah, I, I think they all have that, fra- we all have that phrase and it's still today, is seeing is believing. And Jesus is coming in and saying, mm, believing is seeing. Mm, that's good. 
Right. I like that. Somebody else? Kind of coming on the tail of what he was talking about um, was when Jesus said to the disciples, you know, who do, you, who do people say I am? And they answered, some say Elijah, Moses. Um, and then he said to them, who do you say I am? And he said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And he said, you couldn't know that unless my Father revealed it to you. And so it's the revealing of truth to the believer through the Holy Spirit, through God the Father, um, for us to understand things. You know, sometimes in your walk, um, you're reading something kind of difficult, and you're like, I, I just can't understand this, you know. And you'll go a little bit farther down your walk, and all of a sudden God will reveal it to you, and you'll go, oh, and it makes so much more sense to you at that point mm. because it was just the right time to teach it to you, you mm. know. Yeah, I like and that. so he is our teacher, I like that. Somebody else? I'm very strong about this comment that I'm going to make. It is important to understand what all this means in our lives, but it's more important to really follow what he's saying and apply it to our lives. You see, the whole thing about the Bible, everything that we do, Everything that we read, everything that has been said here today, which is true. What good is it if we're not really applying it to ourselves? And when I say things like, you know, Jesus was not angry. He, he was angry. How does that apply to us? Well, we all know he's righteous, right? I don't have to say that. But the, the thing is, how are we going to really apply that to our lives? How can we be the example to others? You know, and, and I carry this in my heart. Because as I continue, and, I, and you know, one thing just, I continue to see the church struggling with even sharing the Great Commission. Here we are talking about the truth, pastors talking about the truth, everyone here is talking about, about the truth, but what are we really doing with our lives? What does this mean to us today? What would that mean to our kids today? What would that mean to our future generations today? Talking about what Doug said at the beginning. Look at all the mothers and had all this, you know, abortion deal. What does that mean today to us? So, you know, when I hear all this, I'm, I'm good, good with it. But in my heart, I just, I'm just sad. Just sad that not much more is being done by the church to let other people know what this means. And not only that, because I struggle with applying this to myself. I'm not a perfect man, although I'm a pastor. I'm not a perfect man. But are we really grasping these things? You know, because we can go through the motion of saying a lot of things, right? And just talking about it, which is great. But are we really applying it to our life? There's nothing else better than application. Wisdom is equal knowledge. Knowledge is equal understanding. And that's equal application. That's it. You know, I think it's... Um Sometimes we say, I don't know how they don't see that. I mean, how can, you should know this, and it seems like you reject this. How can that happen? Well, it happens because dismissive. Did you have something to say, Holly? Yeah. Uh, oh, Keith, and then Holly. Funny sometimes how, we think one thing because Jesus showed anger, but if you look in the Bible, God's anger burned a lot of times. God showed lots of anger, 
And like everyone's been saying, it's righteous anger. And then going to what Tony was saying concerning ourselves, James 4, 17 says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin to them. So we shouldn't go around looking for things to get angry about. But if we're trying to live, like a 12-year-old Jesus said, about my father's business, then when things are blatantly, when evil is blatantly against good, against God, we have an obligation to speak the truth of God. And if that's done, it shouldn't be done confrontationally. It should be done with love. But sometimes it does require... um, some backbone towards <laughs> a whip. Well, well, no, I, you know what I'm saying. I, I'm not saying we should beat people up, but by the same token, Jesus never ran from truth, right? In fact, if anything, he—I mean, look at some of the things he said to people. And as Christians, we need to love people and point people to Christ, but we should not allow false lies and evil to to be around us, and we shouldn't confront it. Because if you say nothing, it says right there in James, right? If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin to them. Mm. Okay. Holly? Just to be clear, I don't think Jesus was whipping people. He was using it as a tool to drive them out. (laughs) Um, Something I've been mulling over is something that Ann brought up in Bible study that I never really knew or thought about was that during the time of Ezekiel, um, before the temple was destroyed, God left the temple. They were in such sin that God left. His presence left. And then the temple was destroyed, and Cyrus went back and rebuilt it. And you had hundreds of years where you have this temple, but there's no presence of God there. There's religion. Mm-hmm. And the Pharisees were in a system that worked very well for them. It was a system. It was a system of religiosity. You know, they had... They didn't have the spirit of God there in the temple, but they had their rules, and then they had rules on top of those rules, and then, um, but they, that was their system. They liked it, and it worked for them, and so they didn't want the truth. They weren't looking for the truth. They, you know, how did they miss it? They weren't looking for it, because they liked the system that they had, and it wasn't a system of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus came to those who, who wanted who wanted mm-hmm. a savior, who needed a savior. And I think Anne brought this scripture up. I always like the one that says that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter and it's the glory of kings to reveal, to search out a matter. And that he, he put that in us to search out his truth, that if we would look it, for it, we would find it like gold, like a treasure. But that's, that's what we're supposed to do because we want it, because we know we need it. And I just think the system, the system that was set up, they didn't want or need a savior. It was going to completely disrupt what they had been doing for hundreds of years. You know, I think it's, um, maybe we don't see it, but I mean, how does it, how does it get there? Well, little by little, it was, and this is why in our culture today, and just we know that our, the God of this world you know, we know that our culture is going to become more anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-what is right concerning what God has to say. There's going to be more of that. So it happens by 
in per people's lives by believing lies, by walking a step at a time, embracing this, another step embracing that, another step embracing this. And so in the same way, how do we, how do we, how do we connect? It's by taking a step toward and taking a step toward and taking a step toward. And it's really, in my, in all of our years of ministry, we have seen how when you just decide not to believe certain things, then it just kind of opens the door to not believe other things, to not believe other things, to not believe other things. And there's a lot that I don't understand, I don't get. There's a lot that I struggle with, but I'm going, God, here's what I know. If you want me to know it, I'm going to know it. Uh, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep applying these basic principles of following you to do what you want in my life. I'm not going to worry about all that other stuff. Well, let's jump into this last little piece. Um, and beginning in verse 23, and it says, So while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. It says, But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony of mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So in that, in that, during that time of the feast, it says that many claimed to believe because they saw the miracles, and many professed to believe in Jesus. Now, we know that in Titus chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul's talking, and there's other places where this is at, but basically Paul says they profess continually. It's in, the, it's in a past, present tense. They profess continually to know God, but by their deeds they continually deny Him. So it seems that here Jesus is just going, you know, a lot of people profess in faith, but Jesus is going, yeah, I'm, I, um, I kind of know really what's going on in your heart there, I, in your mind, I know what's going on. So it seems that he's saying, I, I'm not accepting that profession of faith. And so no matter what the people themselves said, because he knew what was in their heart, he said, yeah. And so belief in his name involves more than just this intellectual assent or simply saying the words, I believe in Jesus. Because belief in His name involves more than that. Genuine faith is really a call to commitment of one's life as a disciple, learner, follower of Jesus. Uh, so it's almost like He didn't have any faith in their faith. And it seemed like Jesus was saying, I your faith is just surface. It kind of brings me to the thought of the parable of the sower. You know, some seed that fell on the rocky ground and the thorny ground, and what happened is when difficulties came, when other things came in, the fruit was not produced. It, those things overcame. I was thinking about the, uh, in Acts, about Simon the sorcerer. When you read through Acts, uh, Philip goes and he preaching in Samaria, and there's a sorcerer called Simon, and as he's preaching, uh, Simon starts following Philip around. It says that Simon believed. Well, then later, Peter and John hear what's going on in Samaria, and they go down, and they begin to preach, and they start laying hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit. And so Simon, the sorcerer, sees this, and he's going, wow, what a deal. And he goes, he goes to the disciples, and he said, hey, give, how about if I pay you, give me that. And basically, they said to him, you know what, you, you, have no part, you, you don't even have any share in this because your heart is not right before God. And so 
you know, there's just a lot of times that we need to have for ourselves. It's not about professing. It's not simply what the Christian life is about, that I say I believe in Jesus. That's a part of it, but Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, uh, I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart. For with my heart, my confession is made, and the result of that is salvation. So we need to be clear. Matter of fact, in John chapter 8, when in, in, uh, where John is saying that many came to believe in Jesus, Jesus was saying to those Jews who believed him, and he said, wait, okay, okay, well, 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 if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So it is... I love when the multitude of people are following Jesus because he had performed all these signs and he just stopped. He turned around and he said, hey, you want to come after me? You want to follow me? This is how this works. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Then you will be my disciple. And so we, we get to see this picture here about what is going on. There was a lot of people, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And then it was like when it really come down to it, what happened? Those people that were shouting they believed were probably a part of the people uh, that were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And so, again, I think Tony brought it out is, so, you know, really when we read through areas of Scripture, it's to learn and to know, but it's also not just to learn to know, it's to learn to know truth so that we can understand them, so that we can make sure that we apply them in our lives, truths that we apply to our life. So we know that superficial faith is not going to work. It might be a starting point. Jesus is doing something in your life. I've had a lot of people that I know that something happened. They were not believers, and they believed God did something, and it, it, was, it nudged them on a path to continue to pursue where they finally came to believe. So, but it's not just all about your confession. Uh, hearing and seeing and understanding, to me here, it's tied to our believing. Seeing, hearing, understanding really is tied to our believing. Even, I love the uh, guy says, uh, I believe just help me where I don't. Help me in my unbelief. I pray that prayer a lot, you know, Lord, I, I, I don't get it. Help me where I don't get it. I'm, I'm, I believe you, but I don't get it. So I need you to help me get it. And then sometimes it just takes time to understand what God is doing and why he is doing it in our life. Sometimes we're not going to get it right away. And then lastly, I think the thing that really sticks out to me paramount is what Jesus said he would do to prove that he was real and who he was. He did it. So he told them then before, some three years before it ever happened, he said, oh, you want proof? Okay, I'll give you proof. Just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. That will be proof. That validated. And we, you know, we get to that. The resurrection validated who Jesus was in his message. The resurrection did that. And so he basically told them, the Jews, he goes, oh, you want to know? All right, here's proof positive. And so what happened when it happened? Many of them just continued to do what they did. They just plugged their ears, they closed their eyes, and they had no understanding.